Well, Adam told me I can preach from here, but I don't think I'll stay here for very long. But uh, it's great to uh, it's great to be able to be with you this morning. And um, you know, I want to think a little bit about uh, if you're a parent, um, those times where you are watching your kids go through something that's really difficult. It's it's really challenging to them. In fact, sometimes uh, you can find yourself, perhaps uh, your your child is uh, in a uh, a sports activity, and maybe it's the the final quarter. Uh, There's, your team is just badly losing, and you look over at your kid, and you just see that despondent look on their face, like, I don't want to have to go back out there again. Or there are other times where, unfortunately, as a parent, sometimes we have to come alongside our kids at at, at a painful and and frightening time. Perhaps you find yourself in a hospital room, and the nurse is getting ready to come in to uh, start the prep for your child to go in for some sort of surgery. And this is the first time uh, that this child is going to be uh, put under using anesthetic, and they're afraid. Or maybe it's a time where your kids are a little bit older and uh, you've had months and months, perhaps even a couple of years worth of conversations, and now it's time for them to leave for college. The decisions have all been made. They know which college they're going to. They know which major they're going to take. They know which dorm room they're going to have and and who their roommate is going to be. The car's even packed, but now the night before you get ready to go, you look at them and you can tell that they're really struggling. Are they ready to take the step? And in those moments as a parent, even though your heart is breaking, you know what you've got to do. You've got to come alongside. You've got to put your arm around them. And you've got to comfort them. And and the way that you do that, perhaps, is to to let them know that that I'm here for you. And, And to let them know a little bit about some of what it is that they're going to face. Maybe you explain a little bit of how things are going to go. And then you encourage them to say, you know, I know that you can do this. I know that this is hard, but I want you to know that I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And in that moment, that just brings incredible comfort to that kid. The thing is that sometimes, as parents, we have to do that for our children. But there are times in each of our lives, no matter what age we are, where we face circumstances or situations which seem uncertain or unpredictable, and we're kind of looking for somebody to do that for us. Well... Even for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we can find ourselves in situations where we don't know what the future holds, where we are in the midst of a situation, a circumstance, and we don't really know what we're supposed to do, and we even start to wonder, I don't know if I can keep this up. I, I, I don't know if I've got enough to keep on going. Well, Pastor Adam asked me to uh, kick off this morning this uh, new series called Dear Church that you're going to be looking at in these coming weeks. It's a little bit strange, really, to have a guest speaker uh, uh, kick off a new series, so I hope that what I'm going to talk about this morning actually in some way is connected to what you're going to spend the next seven weeks talking about. But, But here in this series that's going to be based on the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation... We're going to spend a little bit of time this morning in the very first chapter of the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. And what I want you to be aware of is that this book, this letter, really is a love letter from God. And what people have all sorts of ideas or opinions as to what the book of Revelation is about. Some people get scared by it. Some people think it's all about just kind of knowing all the details and figuring out all the imagery. But let me tell you, 
The book of Revelation is this. It is a love letter from God in which he comes alongside of people who are going through stuff and they are facing an uncertain future. They're facing difficult trials. And he says, I want to peel back the curtain for you. I want to show you some of what is yet to come so that even when it feels like you can't keep on going, you will discover that the greatness of who I am and the perfection of what I have promised will enable you to sustain and to endure. Because here's the message of the book of Revelation. Be encouraged. You're on the winning team. It's as simple as that. So if you've got a Bible with you, join me there in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to spend a few minutes together looking at actually an incredible portion of Scripture. You can find this on page 1028 if you're using one of the church Bibles that we're at in the lobby. Revelation chapter 1. And what we're going to see this morning is that the surpassing greatness of our God enables us to endure without fear. So it says in Revelation chapter 1, it starts off, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so what we see here is that we have a love letter from God so that we might have perspective and be able to endure. Uh, the reason that we call this portion of Scripture the book of Revelation is because the very first word in this book is um, the word revelation, or more specifically, it's from the Greek word that we get, our word, apocalypse. Now, we tend to think of apocalypse as kind of being like the big, you know, the world ending but really, specifically what it means is that something that was previously hidden has now been revealed. And uh, I want you to notice that this book is actually a gracious gift from God to us. Uh, notice this. It says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says, which God the Father gave to him in order to show his servants, that's us, by the way, the things that must soon take place. Again, as I said a few moments ago, it's this idea of appealing back of the curtain and allowing us to see some of what is going to take place. Because when we have a perspective, it helps us to endure. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. If you're in that sports game, you're down, you're losing terribly in the final quarter, and somebody says, hey, I know how this ends. You win. It's like, you're crazy. But it makes a difference if you know that you actually are on the winning team, doesn't it? And so, it's a wonderful gift to us. But more than that, it goes on and it says that, that this is a gift from Jesus Christ that comes from the Father to us. And it was mediated, if you like, by a heavenly tour guide. An angel was sent to give this revelation to the Apostle John. And it says, blessed are those who read aloud, who hear, and who keep what's written in this. And here's the reason for this. 
this idea of being blessed is, is to be happy or joyous of soul. And, and, and the reason that we are blessed if we hear, if we read aloud, if we hear, if we obey this stuff is not simply because God's ways work, which is true. Uh, it, it, it's not simply because, because it's incredible when we stop and think about the fact that God has, has written a message to us, which he has. Uh, but blessed are those who do it because there is an incredible freedom that we who are followers of Jesus Christ have as we move through life and even through the challenges of life, knowing who our God is and facing every situation in the knowledge of the fact that he has good plans for us, that he knows and understands what he's doing and his ways for us are wise and perfect. And so blessed are those who live in light of that. Oh, and by the way, he says, blessed is the one who understands that the time is near. Now, we don't know when the time is. Uh, We don't know the day or the hour that Jesus will return, but it's coming. And and he says, blessed are those who live with the understanding of the fact that God is not finished yet. And he will do everything that he has promised. There is a joy, there is a freedom, and yes, there's a confidence when we understand that. But as I said, this is a letter. And and what's really interesting is that we tend to think of the the, the series that Pastor Adam's going to be going into, going through the seven churches, uh, 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 the letters to the seven churches here in Revelation as being the contents of chapter 2 and chapter 3. But what we discover in verse 4 here is that actually the whole of the book of Revelation is to these churches. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the king, uh, and the ruler of the kings on earth, and to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And so, you see, what we are supposed to understand when we come to Revelation chapter 1, when we come to the letters that you're going to be looking at in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and for that matter, the whole of the book of Revelation, is that they're surpassing greatness of God assures us of victory. And so through him, we've got nothing to fear. And so we have this idea, just as the series title uh, gives the impression of, of God literally writing a letter and saying, dear church, uh, dear church, he is writing specifically, we're told, to seven churches in Asia. We don't know why these seven in particular were chosen. Uh, it may be that they, the issues that they had, the strengths that they had, were in some way representative of all of the churches in the region, and, and for that matter, all churches, because the fact of the matter is there were more than seven churches in Asia at that time. Some people suggest that uh, these seven churches uh, were representative of seven different ages in the history of the church. Others suggest that they are uh, representative of all churches in all ages, but there are seven different sorts of church issues that exist. 
what we do know for sure is that these were literal, historical, geographical churches, and God is writing to them to encourage them. He's speaking to them to encourage them. And it says that this letter comes from God and from and, and he is the one, we are told, who is and who was and who is to come. I mean, think of that. That, that. That's a description that God gives of himself. He doesn't just say, to church, from God. He actually explains to them, he reminds them of who he is and what he's like. And, and, and that title that he uses, the, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come, speaks of his eternality. There has never been a moment... In all of history, there will never be a moment where God has not existed, where he is not. He is the eternal God. He is the self-existing one. He has no creator. He needs no one to strengthen him or sustain him. He is the eternal God. And from the seven spirits before his throne, I've got to be honest and say there's a lot smarter people than me who don't know what that is. I think that we're supposed to understand that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, why he's referred to as seven spirits. I've got a few ideas. Perhaps it's related to a passage that we find in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. We don't have time to go there right now. Uh, but probably the best way for us to understand this is that this is a letter, in a sense, that comes from God the Father, the Eternal One, from God the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That is, that he has faithfully represented and put on display for a watching world to see what God the Father is like and that he is the firstborn from the dead. That is, he has conquered death and hell, as we'll see a little bit later in this chapter, that being the firstborn, he actually guarantees all of the promises of God to every believer. Being the firstborn from the dead, the fact that he is raised from the dead means that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, though you may die, you will yet raised to life. And he is also the ruler of the kings on earth. I mean, think about that. All you got to do is turn on the news and you see a lot of people posturing and talking about how important they are and this person wants everyone to think that they're more important than that person. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the whole earth. There is none who compares with him. And in fact, as this was being penned. There was such a sense of the greatness, the surpassing greatness of God that it just breaks down in worship. To him who has loved us. And, and, and we as a, as a church need to recognize this. And I think this is really important. Here we are, chapter one of this book. Even before we get into any of the struggles and issues that were represented in those seven churches or in any other churches for that matter. There's the reminder of the fact that he is the one who loves us. And folks, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you do not know that he is passionately in love with you, then I want to encourage you to spend time in his word and just see how much he talks about that love that he has to him who loves us and more than that has freed us from our sins by his blood we also need to understand that if we're followers of Jesus Christ we have been set free we once were prisoners and slaves to sin but no more because of the spilt blood of Jesus on our behalf to him 
who loved us and has freed us, and he has made us a kingdom. He's given us a, 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 a new citizenship, a new identity, and he's made us priests to his God and Father. Priests, by the way, are those who worship. They stand before God in worship, and they stand before a watching world as representatives. It says, to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. You see, when we stop and we actually take time to remember the greatness of who God is, it will always, always, always lead us to worship. And so I would ask you even that question. When you think of God, what thoughts come through your mind? Do you have a picture of God who is great and highly exalted and worthy of worship? Or have you settled for a God who's small? A God who's impotent. A God who doesn't stir up that sense of praise. Because just as the early church who were facing incredible persecution, incredible opposition, some of them were being put to death because of their faith in Jesus Christ, just like they needed to know that their God is great and the surpassing greatness of who he is enables them to endure without fear, so do we. So do we. He declares again, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He says, he's the Lord Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. He repeats the same thing. Even so, even so. You know, I love the fact here, it talks about the fact that even those who pierce him will see him when he comes. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. It made me think of a time uh, not too long ago when I was with my youngest daughter, Sophie. She's three years old. We were at, uh, at the park, and uh, she was off playing um, uh, nicely by herself, and there were some other kids there in the park, and uh, some of them were a little bit older, and I, I, I noticed something that was going on, and there was a kid, probably about six years old. He was, um, uh, he was starting to be mean toward her. And, I, and I'm sat there and I'm watching for a little while, but I could see she's getting upset. And so I stand up and I take a couple of steps toward and I say, hey, just like that. The guy jumps, the little kid jumps and he turns and he looks at me and uh, I give him a hard stare. And he runs off kind of wailing to his mom. Now, I'm not saying that's what I should have done. Uh, I, my wife probably would have handled that situation more tactfully. But for people who were being persecuted, for people who were being imprisoned, for people whose businesses were being taken from them, for people who were being literally stripped naked, whose homes were being set on fire, they were being imprisoned, and some of them were being killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And this was happening at the hands of people who were in positions of authority. This was happening at the hands of, of, of state-regulated bullies. And by the way, this is still happening today to our brothers and sisters in Christ in many different nations around the world. What a reminder of the fact that there is coming a day where Jesus Christ himself will come in the greatness and the fullness of who he is and just a glimpse of him in that moment will set the nations to wailing as they see him come and as we, his people, and our brothers and sisters who have been persecuted recognize that their deliverer is here and is ready to help. 
And we see as the chapter unfolds, we don't have time to go into all of the details. I wish we did. Adam told me I can't preach for three hours. So um, we see that the apostle John receives a vision. And that's really what this book of Revelation is about. Uh, we, we, we see this vision from uh, our matchless God. Uh, he says in verse 9 that he is a partner with the other believers in the, in the things that they're going through. And he reminds us of the fact that, that we actually have a partnership. We have a fellowship with other believers. And it, he even speaks about the fact that we are not only a partner in, in, in the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ together. He speaks about the fact that we're partners in tribulation. We're partners in the kingdom. And we're partners in the patient endurance as we wait for the appearing of Christ. He reminds them we're in this together. And he explains when he gets this, this revelation, he says, and if you doubt that, let me tell you, um, I received what I'm passing on to you at a time where I was in exile under the Roman emperor Domitian in AD 95. John was sent to Patmos and uh, it's a little island and he was basically abandoned there. Uh, this is what they would do when they didn't really want to kill the guy, but they kind of wanted him out of the way. They would just send him off to an island. And says it was on the Lord's day. And I was in the spirit. Probably he was worshiping. And he heard, this is verse 10, a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he lists the churches there. We'll see them in coming weeks. He says, and then I turned to see the voice, verse 12, that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is an incredible vision of of Jesus Christ in the fullness of his glory. Remember, this is the Apostle John. He walked with Jesus for three and a half years. This is the Apostle John who saw the resurrected Jesus, but now he sees the fullness of the splendor of his glory. And we know this is Jesus because of the designation, one like the Son of Man, comes right out of the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 3. And it's an incredible picture. As his, his, his hair is spoken of, his, his eyes, his feet, uh, his, his voice, and his hands. Every part of him is described here. And it is a fearful picture. It is a splendid picture. It speaks of wisdom. It speaks of power. It speaks of judgment. It speaks of purity and holiness. And not surprisingly, John falls down before him. But what I want you to notice is this, and this is really important as we go into the uh, series that Pastor Adam is going to be teaching in these coming weeks, is that Jesus is walking amidst the lampstands. Uh, there are seven golden lampstands which he's walking amidst, and verse 20 of chapter 1 tells us what those lampstands are. They are the churches themselves, which when you stop and think about it, that is absolutely incredible, because if I understand this correctly... Every church has a lampstand amidst which Jesus walks. So we could say that Jesus superintends his church and his people. 
I mean, think about that. The, the image of the lampstand certainly uh, gives this idea of shining out the light of the gospel, doesn't it? We see Jesus talking about that to his disciples, like in Matthew chapter 5, for example. Let your light so shine before men. But here we have this picture of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands. I want you to think about that. Because he's walking amongst the lampstands of the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and these other churches. But what if he's walking amongst the lampstand of Redemption Church in Belvedere? I think he is. I mean, think about that. In the presence of Jesus Christ, this church has a lampstand. And just as he walks around and through his church, caring for and superintending all that takes place, so he does so for this church and, and, and for every church. Because Jesus is passionate about his church. And Jesus isn't just passionate about his church. He's passionate about a different group within his church as well. Because it says that in his right hand, he holds seven stars. And again, we're referencing here the seven churches of Asia. Hence the reason seven. But again, in verse 20, it says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Oh, wow. What does that mean? Well, there are two different views on this. One of them is right, one of them is wrong. Problem is, I'm not entirely sure which is which. It may be that this is a reference to Jesus holding literally angels in, his, in the palm of his hand and, and that each of these churches has been entrusted with an angelic being. It seems a little strange to me that Jesus would be writing a letter to angels. I don't think that that's the case. But actually, the, the word from which we get our word angel also can be rendered messenger. And I think probably a better way to understand this is, is that as Jesus writes to these churches, and at the beginning of each of the seven letters you're going to be looking at, it says, to the angel of the church at, write these things is that it seems to be that those seven stars that he's holding, that the angels to whom are being addressed are the, the God-ordained, designated leaders of those churches. So there's a sense in which Jesus is saying to Pastor Adam and the church of redemption at, at Belvedere, write these things. And, and so, uh, think about this for a moment. Not only is Jesus passionate and, and superintending his church, but he's passionate about him protecting and watching over and literally holding in the palm of his hand the leaders that he has entrusted to each local church. What an incredible thing. And, and think about this. This letter originally was addressed to people who were going through stuff. And, and here's the thing. If you are facing persecution, if you're facing opposition, if you're facing imprisonment and even death, who are the first people they come for? The leaders. It was the pastors of these churches who had the biggest target written on their back. And here's a reminder of the fact that we have a Savior, that we have a God who holds these faithful men in the palm of his hand. Woe to any who would try to pull them down. And woe to any who through their bickering and their divisiveness 
And their constant criticism, even within the church, would seek to take those who Jesus is passionate about, having placed them in this position of influence according to his great wisdom, trying to tear them down. Not that any of you would treat Pastor Adam that way. But folks... We need to understand, as you're going to be looking at this message to these churches, and some of what's going to be said in these letters are, is very challenging and very convicting and is difficult to hear. We need to understand that, folks, we have a Savior who loves his bride, who is passionately committed and who superintends the things of his church. Sadly, we live in a day where even those who name the name of Jesus Christ often have this opinion of the church that it's kind of a necessary evil or it's something to engage with when there's nothing better to do or it's something that we don't really need because we can just grow spiritually on our own. Here's the problem with that. That is not how Jesus looks at his church. Jesus is passionately committed to his bride. And you've probably heard this said before. You cannot love Jesus Christ and despise his bride. It would be like me coming up to any one of you and saying, Hey, I really like you, but I don't like your wife. It doesn't go over very well. And so we need to remember this, but we also need to understand we need to understand the greatness of who this Jesus is, the passion that he has for his people, and the fact that because he is so passionate about his church and because of his surpassing greatness, we have nothing to fear. And so this passage closes with John falling on his, uh, on his face before Jesus. It says, as though dead in verse 17. But Jesus comes and he lays his right hand on him. And listen to this. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He goes on. He gives instruction as to writing what he will see. But again, Jesus reminds John of the greatness of who he is. He reminds him that there is no other like him, that he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, that he is entirely self-sufficient, that he is entirely glorious and beyond compare. And he says, behold, I died and I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. You know what I love about that? To know that Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades is that he has power over them. And since he has power over them, I don't need to fear even death. You know, we still use that expression sometimes, don't we? We might be out somewhere and be like, hey, what should we do? And hey, it would be really neat to go there, but they're probably closed by now. And somebody will all of a sudden jingles is like, yeah, but I got the keys. Is that idea of the fact that, hey, I'm in charge. I got control over this. I can drive the car. I got it. I got the power. 
And Jesus says, listen, I have the keys of death and Hades. So whatever they may do to you, whatever seems uncertain, whatever seems frightening, whatever seems like you can't keep on going, you don't know if you've got the strength for that, just know this, I got the keys. There's nothing to fear. When I say that you can endure to the end, you can endure because it's in my strength, not yours. When I say keep on going, it's because I go with you. And when I say do not fear, it's because I have conquered everything that would give you cause to fear. So keep on keeping on. You know, I love this passage. I love any passage where we find such clear descriptions of the glory and the splendor and the magnificence of our God. The thing is, this is a message that we need desperately in the church of Jesus Christ today. It's a message that, we, that they needed back then because they were going through tough stuff and they didn't know the answers. And, and, and there were many people who didn't know if they could keep on going. It, it, it's something where, where believers all around the world need this. As Pastor Adam mentioned, I have the privilege now of, uh, of traveling to uh, many different places around the world to encourage and to teach and to equip and to train and to mentor, to come alongside of believers and specifically pastors to help them to stay the course and to help to equip them to reach their communities. And whether that be in China and Myanmar, whether it be in, in, in places like Nepal or, or India, whether it be in places like Egypt and, and, and Lebanon or Cuba or, or countless other places that we go to and where we're serving. There are faithful men, faithful women who are trying to keep on serving, but they are facing incredible opposition because of the name of Jesus Christ. And what this passage calls them and calls us to do is simply to behold our God. To behold our God. Before you get into the letters, which talk about some stuff that needs correcting, some stuff that needs strengthening, some stuff that needs helping, and some stuff that needs changing, we've got to start from the place of understanding who our God is, his passionate love for us, and the greatness of who he is. So I want to encourage you, behold your God. Make sure that you spend time to think great thoughts of God, to ponder on the greatness of who he is, to encourage one another. And the scripture tells us to do this, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That doesn't mean do a song and dance routine whenever you see each other. What it means is encourage one another with the greatness of who God is, of what he's doing in your life, of what you've read in scripture. Build one another up because we need to behold the greatness of who he is. It also tells us that we're to listen, to take courage, and to obey his word, for he alone is the sovereign king. Because here's the thing, the promises that are made in this book, the promises that we find all throughout scripture, are for those who are his. And, and, and part of being one of his children is to do what he says. And there is joy and there's freedom and there's confidence when we do what he says. There's freedom and delight in that. And it exhorts us to simply keep on going keep going and so I guess I'd put it this way Jesus is saying I know what you're facing today is hard but keep looking at me I know that it feels that you can't keep on going in your marriage in your singleness in your fight against cancer in your standing firm for me at work in your struggle against temptation or sin 
I know that for some of you, the enemy tells you it would just be easier to give up, drop out, end it all. But Jesus says, beloved, I am with you and I will not leave you. I walk with my people as I walk in the midst of my church. I hold you in the palm of my hand as I hold your pastor. And my purpose, even in what you're going through, is good and delightful and certain. Because I am your great savior. I am your mighty ruler. I am your perfect judge and I am the conquering victor the everlasting God. That, folks, is what the book of Revelation is all about. The surpassing greatness of our God will enable us to endure without fear. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we are amazed as we stop for a moment and consider the greatness of who you are. Forgive us for those times in each of our lives where we tend to make our circumstances big and you are God small. Lord, would you teach us to look upon your surpassing greatness and to find confidence in that, knowing that indeed if you are for us, then who can be against us? Lord, I pray for this church that you would richly bless them. I pray that you would strengthen each individual and each family, each home. Lord, that they would not only know and delight in you, but be bold in sharing you with others. And I pray that where there are places in each of our lives where we feel like giving up, where we don't know if we can keep on going, Lord, you know each of those areas of struggle. I don't somebody coming in here this morning, but you know each one of them. You know the, the, the burdens of each heart. I pray that this day that you would encourage and strengthen and give hope in the midst of the struggle that each one here would know your arm resting around their shoulder and your voice reminding them that you are their God that you love them and that through faith in Jesus Christ they have been set free by his blood. Lord, may we be a people, may we be a church that walks even the most difficult of days with confidence and, yes, joy because we know that you have already claimed the victory and that whatever we face, we do it in the knowledge that you will never leave us or forsake us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.